Hello, this is Manny in the editor's chair. I just wanted to say something before our interview with Dr. Walton. Whether you have listened to our other episodes or you're someone coming to the show for the first time, please do us the favor of opening up Spotify, iTunes, or whatever app you use to listen to podcasts and leave us a quick rating and review the show. That would really help us reach more people with the important research we like to cover, like the exciting work we're going to talk about today. So thank you very much. And welcome to A Bit More Complicated, the podcast where you can hear science-based discussions about important topics, issues, and problems in society and what we can do to make them better. I'm Dylan Selderman at Johns Hopkins University. And I'm Manny Galvan at UNC Chapel Hill. Today, I'm very happy to introduce Dr. Greg Walton. Greg is a social psychologist and Stanford University professor. He studies the psychological processes that reinforce and exacerbate inequality, and he focuses on how we can use psychologically wise intervention to disrupt those processes, to reduce inequality over time. What's most important to know about Greg is just how successful his approach has been. He and his colleagues have many peer-reviewed, double-blinded, rigorous interventions that significantly reduce achievement gaps, that reduce suspension rates, that promote environmental behaviors, increase voter turnout, and much more. This is why he has been the recipient of countless awards, millions of dollars of funding, and he has collaborated with just a wide array of brilliant scholars. So today, Greg will be joining us to discuss his fascinating work with a focus on a new paper that's coming out in science that will be published the same day that this episode is being published. Greg, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I should also say that Greg is my old PI and in uh, academic parlance, that's primary investigator, basically the boss that I had when I was working at the College Transition Collaborative or CTC while I was at Stanford. Uh, working there was just a life-changing experience for me. So in many ways, including opening doors to be at UNC. I took a very non-traditional route to get where I am today. And in some ways, Greg and the folks at CTC took a chance on a young me, including helping me move from Texas to California. And that kindness and opportunity remains a life-changing experience because as of this episode being published, Greg and I will be co-authors on a paper that's in science, which is just still mind-blowing for me. Um, the paper is titled, Where and With Whom Does a Brief Social Belonging Intervention Promote Progress in College? And we'll be talking a lot about that paper towards the end of the episode. But first, I just want to ask you, Greg, how does it feel to have this paper out? I feel like we've been thinking about this paper since I was back there four years ago. It's been a, a thing that we've been discussing and, and we've been looking forward to getting it out. Can you just tell me more about the process and also just the large team of lovely people that are involved here. Yeah, I mean, this paper is a paper like few others. I don't, I wouldn't say none, no others, but, you know, most, most research articles in psychology have, you know, two, three, four authors, maybe. Um, usually their, um, the work is confined to, you know, one place. And this paper has 37 authors. It has data from 22 different highly diverse um, colleges and universities. It has data from nearly 27,000 students. And it's a project that is deeply collaborative and, and just goes back a long way and a ton of people, both on the author list and partners at institutions and partners who guided and, and shaped the project um, contributed to. So it's a, it's a real example of team science. And you ask how it feels. I mean, it's wonderful, right? It's wonderful to be able to bring a community together, to focus on a problem, to try to understand that problem, 
to you know learn in that process. I mean, it's amazing to go back at some of our old photos and see the babies who were in those photos and know that they are now you know going to elementary school. Maybe they're going to middle school and and the the development you described your own development through mm-hmm. the course of the relationship with CTC. Um, you know, every single one of us uh, and our families have also developed in tandem as we're as we've learned. Yeah, it is great. Congratulations to both of you on getting that paper published. So, Greg, you have written about a particular approach called the wise intervention approach. Can you describe what you mean by wise in that context? Yeah, it's really important to understand what that word means because it means something very particular. It means wise to how people are making sense of or understanding themselves, other people, or a social situation. It doesn't mean that this kind of approach is necessarily effective or more effective or or better than, than other approaches. Wise interventions can fail. They routinely fail. In fact, a big lesson from this intervention is to systematically understand where the intervention works and where the doesn't where the intervention doesn't work. The idea of wise interventions, though, is that often we walk into situations where a context is such that, or the history is such that, or the institution is such that there's a reason we have to wonder about something, and that those those wonderings can often be pejorative, like can people like me belong here? Or can I trust you when you give me feedback? When we're in situations that prompt those questions, we're at risk of seeing the world in ways that reinforce the the fears that we have and then going down a, a negative path, spiraling down. But what interventions do, what wise interventions do is they offer people answers to those pressing questions. And then people can think about those answers and ask themselves if that fits with their circumstances, if they can use that, if that's a legitimate and useful idea for them. And when it is, uh, they can use that to get through that that stickiness and uh, spiral upward. One of my favorite examples that you cite in one of your wise intervention papers is the research by Eli Finkel. And I mentioned this because it's part of my own research area on interpersonal relationships and this is about marital satisfaction being boosted by for when couples use a third person perspective to resolve conflicts. It's such an elegant and yet uh, simple idea. Eli calls it the marriage hack, but it's more than just taking a shortcut. It involves really deeply challenging the way that people think about interactions with other people. And that kind of deep seated psychological change seems to be at the heart of wise interventions. Can you give a couple of maybe one or two other problems that you've been addressing with the wise intervention approach? You know, one of the things that that Eli introduced me to and that that team of researchers introduced me to is that if you look at longitudinal studies of marital satisfaction, those slopes are negative. People's marital satisfaction is just on the whole going down over time. And one of the reasons why that might happen, we started to theorize is that you know you you get in a little tiff with your partner they do something that pissed you off and then you respond to them as a person who has pissed you off and then they respond that back to you it's a kind of cycle over time between two people and if you're in a, a marriage and you have a kind of persistent conflict in the marriage, usual kinds of perspective taking advice, like consider what your spouse thinks, like that's not going to land well because you already know what your spouse thinks and it's crazy, right? Like there is totally like, you know, that, that's why it's a persistent conflict is you both think that the other person is crazy. And so what we did in that intervention was to ask people to think about a neutral third party who wants the best for all. How would they make sense of this persistent conflict that exists in your marriage? What, how, would they, how would they perceive that? 
And then we ask people, the next time you're in a conflict situation with your spouse, how could you take that neutral third party perspective and use that in that situation? You're not asking people to take your spouse's perspective because everybody thinks their spouse's perspective is cuckoo. But you're both people, both members of the couple are identifying what would be a neutral third party who wants the best for all and how they could take that perspective. So that was appended as a seven minute edition to the end of surveys that Chicagoland couples were completing over time. Seven minutes a, a pop, three times, and that halted that downward decline in marital satisfaction over a year. So the, the headline is like 21 minutes to save a marriage or 21 minutes improves your marital satisfaction a year later. But the thing that's really important there is to just understand that psychological process. So people are there, they're worrying about the, their their marriage, maybe they're, they're, they're starting to draw potentially negative conclusions about their spouse. The intervention gives people an opportunity to think about that experience from a different point of view, and um, that can help them find the space that they need in order to maintain the quality of that relationship. There's you know, many other examples, you know, one other that's also focused on relationships, but a totally different kind of relationships is the work on wise feedback by Jeff Cohen and David Yeager and, and a number of others. And here the, the psychology is that getting critical feedback on your work is like the most important resource for learning. Like somebody who really knows what they're doing, looks at what you've done, and they've said, this is what's working. This is what's not working. Here's how you could improve this. And yet when we receive critical feedback, sometimes we can react badly. We can worry that maybe this person is judging me. Maybe this person doesn't think I can do it. And when that feedback is coming across group lines, like if it's coming from a white teacher to an African-American student or from a man in science to a, a younger, um, like a female student in science, then additional worries crop up. Like maybe this person's biased. Maybe this person thinks that people like me can't do it. That becomes all the more upsetting and all the more reason to dismiss the feedback and not learn from it, not use it. What wise feedback work does is it shows that if you explicate the reasons why you're giving that critical feedback. So if you tell the student, I'm giving you this feedback because I have high standards and I think that you can meet them, that can sustain that trust and help students take up your feedback and it can improve outcomes months and even years later um, in some cases. Right on. That's great. One of the things I've been thinking about in examining your work in this area is that wise interventions approach is not just focused on people's mental processes, but also contextual factors related to mental processes. So I'm hoping you can speak to this. How do we think about the psychological stuff interacting with the situations and circumstances that people are in when they receive these interventions? Right. So like, think about the wise feedback work. So the reason why that work is particularly powerful is because there's a history of racism in education. So there's a history of people saying that African-American kids and other kids of color are less able in school than, than white kids, that they're less deserving of advanced learning opportunities. Those are stereotypes that exist within our culture. And if a student then, you know, a developing 13-year-old, for example, is starting to learn more about the world, more about how their group is seen, if that's somewhere in the back of their mind, if they've heard some stories maybe from an uncle who had a bad experience in school, who didn't fully trust their teachers, who uh, got the short end of the stick, received some bias in a way that was really problematic for that person. They've heard those stories. If they, if they know some of that history, and then their teacher, their English teacher comes down hard on them on an assignment, they've written... Uh, an essay and their teacher has just filled it with red ink. It's that history that gives that worry 
substance, right? So sometimes, you know, we've talked about, we, we, sometimes we talk about things like mindset and then kids come to college and they say, oh, when I was in high school, I was told I should have a growth mindset. And the implication is that if you don't have the growth mindset, it's it's your fault. And um, it's really on you to have that growth mindset. But the reason why people have fixed mindsets, the reason why people think sometimes that intelligence is fixed and um, and there's not much you can do about it is because that is what was taught by psychologists like Lewis Terman and his intellectual errors for generations in this country. So it's these histories, histories of racism, histories of how intelligence is conceived and taught and implemented to people uh, that make people have these psychological processes. So the, the, psycho the psychology and that social and cultural and historical context are, are interwoven. Right. You can really see this really well with the belonging intervention. And maybe we should just jump straight to that now. So can you give us a detailed idea of how the social belonging intervention works psychologically, but also in terms of important outcomes? It has these really profound effects on academic outcomes. What's the theoretical reason for why that's happening? The first thing to understand is the concept of belonging uncertainty. And that is something that comes right from our history of you know, racial and social class exclusion in education. So when people come to college, they're aware often that there is a history of uh, saying that kids from less well-off backgrounds, kids of color, are less able and therefore less deserving of advanced training opportunities. You know, students, uh, first-generation students, African-American students, Latino students, they can look around a college campus and see that there's just not that many people like them there that the system seems built and assumptive of other people's identities, but not theirs, that the faculty are, are predominantly don't represent their group. There can be many, many different cues that imply that you're not typical here, that maybe you wouldn't fit here. So then that gives rise to this question, uh, do people like me belong here? And that's an uncertainty. That's why I call it belonging uncertainty. When people go to college, they typically want to belong. They value that place. Um, they're hoping that they can belong there. They think it's an important place for their personal um, and academic development. They're, they want to succeed, but they're worried that maybe they don't. And then when bad things happen, and bad things could be something as something big, but it could also be something very small, you can start to wonder, does this mean that people like me don't belong here? I think this is an experience that all of us can relate to. So I had plenty of advantages in going to college. My parents are both professors. So I'm a, I'm a faculty brat. I was brought up on a college campus at the University of Michigan. Um, I'm white, right? But when I went to college, I traveled from Michigan to California. And early in the fall, in my first uh, year at college, I was biking back through the central part of campus and I saw this in and out truck had showed up. And in Michigan, there are no in and outs. I never really heard of the chain. I didn't know why anybody would be excited about it. But not only was the in and out truck there, but there's a whole line of kids, who all of them I assumed were from Southern California, eager to get a burger from in and out. And I thought, I'm not standing in line for a burger. And I like tromped off to the dining hall where I had my lunch alone. For me, the anxiety in going to college was uh, about being homesick and whether I would make friends uh, in this new environment, whether people in California would like me and include me and I would be I'd be able to reproduce some of the close relationships I'd had in college. Seeing that line in the in and out truck triggered uh, those, those worries. There was there was no, you know, malice in that story. You know, there nobody did anything to me. And I'm sure that if I had stood in line and said, oh, what's in and out and tell me why you like it so much, people would have been thrilled to talk with me about that. But just seeing the line evoked for me the, the latent worry that was in the back of my head. 
But then imagine that you're, um, you know, a black kid, right? Maybe you're a first generation black student. And there's just, there really aren't that many people like you in the college setting that you're in. Your parents didn't go to college. You know, there's implicit to explicit, you know, stereotyping that you're aware of that's going on that might be affecting the ways that other people are treating you and interacting with you. And then your instructor is gruff with you one day. Then you, you, you apply to, you know, join some student group and you get rejected from your student group. You find out that all the people in your hall have gone off to some party and nobody bothered to invite you. You know, each of those events could feel like confirmatory evidence that people like you don't belong. And if you draw that inference, then it's going to be harder to engage in that setting. If you think that your professor was gruff to you because because he doesn't like you, because you don't belong, you're probably not going to go to office hours to ask that person a question. You might not go to office hours for a different professor either. If you think that you've been excluded uh, in your dorm, you might be less likely to go reapproach those people or, or build other kinds of friendships. And if you don't do those things, then you end up actually, in some sense, not belonging. You end up isolated. You've kind of created the world that you fear. You don't have friends. You don't have a mentor. And you don't have a mentor. You don't have as clear academic direction. And so what the belonging intervention does is it tries to surface the truth, which is that everybody, in some way or another, worries about whether they belong when they come to college. How we do that, your story, my story, might be very different. We might have different kinds of worries. Uh, they might come up at different times, but it's a major transition and it's a, a very normal thing to worry about whether you belong in this new environment you're going to. And then when something like that happens, the goal is to help people out of thinking in a black or black or white kind of mindset, does this mean I belong or not? And into a kind of a growth mindset, like, okay, that happened, that was sucky, but how do I build my belonging in this space? Like, who are the people, who are the communities, where's the student groups, where's the space that I can grow and develop? What do I want to learn more about? What do I want to try out? Where do I want to put out a trial balloon? And how can I you know, come to belong in this environment? And, you know, we can talk about the outcomes. There's many, many different outcomes, but for something as important as actually really legitimately, authentically feeling like you belong in college, that's like a transformatively different uh, experience that changes people's school achievement and motivation. It changes their health, their well-being. It changes their trajectory in their adult lives. One thing that's so interesting about the intervention is that it does target these kind of universal concerns, as you were saying. It doesn't matter really what walk of life you come from. You can worry about your belonging. You can feel this belonging uncertainty. But what's really cool about this intervention and the way it's being implemented is it's being used to target these historical uh, inequalities in academia between students who come from underrepresented minority groups versus their majoritarian counterparts. And so I'm wondering if you can just talk through some of the history here and why the intervention is effective given that history. One way to talk about that is to say, like, you look at like persistent inequalities in America, and there are so many reasons there are these inequalities. Like there's inequality, every kind of space that you look at, there's there's different forms of inequality. So you ask a question like, why is it that there's inequality in college achievement? Well, you know, there's inequality in K-12 schooling. There's inequality in access to high quality preschools, right? There's inequality in early, you know, nutrition and high quality foods, right? But what the belonging intervention, one of the important things that the belonging intervention reveals is that one cause, this is now interpreting the control condition, one cause of inequality in college 
are these worries about belonging that people are reasonably drawing from the sociocultural historical context that they're operating in, that those are reproducing inequality. Like you have, you have racism and social class exclusion in the history of education in the United States and elsewhere. And people start to intuit that and they feel that and they experience that partly as a worry about belonging. And when those worries go unaddressed, they go neglected, then they reproduce themselves in things like a lack of friendships, a lack of participation in social in student groups, a lack of mentor development, a lack of academic direction. One thing I was hoping you could do is uh, just for the, the sake of everybody understanding what the belonging intervention does, can you give us kind of a participant's eye view of what happens if you're in the experimental condition versus the control? Sure. The intervention can be delivered in a variety of forms and contexts. It can come before college, which is done in the CTC trial and some other trials. It can come during college, so at some point during the transition to college in the first year or sometimes even in the second year. The mechanics of it are quite straightforward, though, and, and um, non-complex. So, you know, people hear information. They hear the results of, of surveys of other students that show that many people, most people worry at first about whether they belong when they come to college and that that gets better with time. That people often feel intimidated by professors. They often feel homesick. They often worry about making close friends, but they're able to overcome those, those challenges with time. And then at the core of it, they read stories that are kind of parables from older students who describe that trajectory, that story in different ways. One person might feel very lonely that they haven't made close friends and tells a story about that experience and how they're able to build those friendships. One student might say that they made a lot of friends, but they felt like they were actually all very casual and somewhat superficial and their story of trying to build deeper friendships. A person might tell a story about feeling intimidated by professors, uh, not wanting to show their work to professors, feeling judged by professors, not wanting feedback from professors, but how they found an academic direction and maybe started uh, working more closely with a professor and, and built their confidence that way. Now, this is not presented to people as help uh, or an intervention. People aren't told, hey, you, uh, Dylan, we think you don't belong. And here's some help for that. Like People are told, we want your help in explaining to future students uh, what the experience is like in coming to college and really being real with people, like surfacing the real challenges that people face and how that unfolds over time. And so then at the end, people are asked, tell us your story. What are the worries about belonging either that you've experienced or that you are feeling or that you do anticipate feeling? And how has that changed or how do you expect that will change over time? And it's a bit like kind of map construction. It's like people are kind of constructing a map for what their experience in this space might be like and how they can navigate that space, the challenges that they can anticipate. Where is the river that they're going to have to cross? Where are this, where's the mountain range? I can see that coming. And then when I see the mountain range, it's not a reason to turn back. It's just a, a time to implement the strategy that I thought about in advance for when I see the mountain range. The control condition looks exactly the same. It's just that the content is different. So the content might be about how do you get used to the physical environment of college? What are the, where are the buildings? How do you get from one place to another? What's the weather like? How do you get used to living in a suburban area versus a rural area versus an urban area, whatever it might be? And there's the same growth aspect to the control, right? Where it's like, at first I was discombobulated yeah. about where the buildings are, and now I know how to navigate the campus. But it's just not yeah. the specific social belonging growth that, that the intervention has. Yeah, that's right. And it's interesting because, you know, there's versions of the belonging intervention for um, very different populations, like for 
middle school students. And for middle school students, if you talk to them, when I did focus group seventh graders a long time ago about their experience coming to middle school, they talked about the physical environment as a as an aspect of belonging. So they would say things like, you know, I'm worried that I'll be lost in this big school and nobody will show me the way. And so those kinds of stories became part of the adaptation for middle school students. But uh, it's, I think, less a little bit less central at the uh, college level. Right. And it's just the final thing for to set up the, the paper that we're going to discuss next. I'd love to hear you to just talk a little bit about what the College Transition Collaborative is. What What's the CTC? What does it do? Yeah. So the CTC um, is a group of um, researchers and higher education leaders who are coming together to collaborate to belonging and growth and equity in college. So there was a story in the New York Times Magazine um, called Who Gets to Graduate by Paul Tuff in the spring of 2014. And that was reporting in part on some of our work at the University of Texas at Austin. And we knew that it was going to garner a lot of interest among higher education leaders. And CTC was founded as an effort to respond to that interest and channel it in ways that would be productive for learning and for students' um, success and outcomes. CTC has done many different projects. The belonging trial is, is the, was the first and the seminal study, but there was also work on um, how, do, how do institutions communicate to students about academic probation. probation. And there's also a project called the Student Experience Project, which is about what is students' experience like in, in critical um, introductory STEM courses and can we create tools that institutions and instructors can use to make those environments more belonging supportive and more growth supportive in reducing inequalities? Um, CTC um, has recently spun out of Stanford uh, and become uh, an organization called Equity Accelerators, which um, our uh, co-founder, Mary Murphy, is leading at the University of Indiana, Indiana University. Uh, but it's carrying forward that mission. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I was curious if schools can immediately take these findings and start to apply them. Do you find that colleges are receptive to doing this kind of thing on their own? Folks are aware of the findings, right? And they, they could start implementing them on their own. And did, did you get any pushback from schools about whether this would work? David Yeager and I wrote a paper in 2011 called Social Psychological Interventions in Education. They're not magic. I don't think anybody thinks that a tool like this is going to be the magic bullet that solves all of our problems. It's a tool. It has a role. And there's different ways to use that tool. The online pre-matriculation based social belonging intervention is available, uh, freely available online to all colleges and universities, all four-year colleges and universities in the United States and Canada. It's on a, it's on a website hosted by our partner, PERPS, the Project for Education Research That Scales. And it's been there for several years and hundreds of thousands of students have taken advantage of that through, uh, I don't know how many different institutions. The work that CTC has done around academic probation and communicating to students about academic probation is bottled in an edX course that's available through my website. That's a, a guide for university leaders who are in charge of probation processes and communications. And that has also been used by uh, many, many institutions. And CTC and now Equity Accelerators hosts a library of toolkits that are also available. Things like a syllabus review. How do you how do you communicate in a syllabus effectively? Wise feedback is there. That's freely available as well. As with anything, you know, there's a lot of complexity. Everybody's working in a different context with a different population. It's not to say that like one particular approach, 
you know, it works in one place would work in a different place. People are professionals and they're experts. And uh, what we need to do is not just understand a tool and just kind of implement it blindly, but really understand what that tool is trying to do, uh, the problem it's trying to address and how you can make it fit and work in the setting that you're in. I'm curious to know, because there there's so much going on on college campuses and, and so much has been politicized and so much has been oversimplified. I'm wondering if you've seen anything else going on that, you know, may be well-intentioned, but is giving the students a very different message than the one that you would hope that they would get. I mean, there's tons of examples of well-intended messages that are not psychologically wise or landing well. A lot of these have nothing in particular to do with identities, for example. One thing that a university, so imagine you're a university registrar, you're in charge of admissions, you go through a cycle, you start getting files in the winter and into the spring, and you've got this class that's coming in and you're so excited because this, you know, one person who's coming in is so cool and interesting. And this other person is super cool and interesting in a totally different way. And Maybe it's May and uh, you're going to a, uh, an alumni group and you're going to try to raise money from those alum and you you tell the you tell your staff you know pull the the files on these six students who are just unbelievable or, you know already changing the world and and I can use those you know case studies to tell these uh, alumni how amazing our university is or our colleges and the, the great things that our students can do and and you'd give that speech and now it comes around to September and your your job is now to welcome the new class and you pull out that old speech that you had and you welcome the new class by saying I'm so excited that you're here you know one student in this class this is an incredible class has invented a new form of gene engineering and three people are you know already Olympians and a fourth person wrote a, a book about Russian philosophy and you know, before you know it, like the other, like however many people who exist in the class are feeling like, like, who am I? Like, I haven't done anything like that. I'm not special. Like these people are, are unreal to me. And that's like not the right message. Like your, your alumni fundraising pitch is not your welcome to college pitch. Right. That's something I really just always appreciate about working at the CTC. Yes, of course, the purpose of kind of what our work is, is to alleviate these social inequalities and do something about them. But I think that right there, neck and neck with that goal is to do a science-based, evidence-based, rigorous approach. And and I've always just really appreciated that. I think to Dylan's point, a lot of people just start doing stuff because it sounds right. It sounds good. It sounds like it might work. I don't know. Maybe it does. And and that's just not your approach. It's not the approach of the CTC. And I've always really, really appreciated that because there is a lot of uh, stuff that goes on out there that people think is going to work, but there's no evidence that it will work yet unless you do the study, unless you verify that, which is what a lot of what the CTC does. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that the world is is complex and people have different roles in it. So, you know, sure. if you are an instructor, like writing your syllabus for class, like you're teaching like you know, Chem 153 or something. You sit down to write your syllabus. You're thinking through all the different content you want to present, the order in which you want to present it. Is it the right amount, the right pacing? Is it confusing? Like you have like a flood of things. You have to make decisions right then about how that that class is going to go, what you're going to do. And then you speak, you speak to the class on the first day and you have to do that like right then. Like you can't do an RCT for everything all the time, right. but there's a role for RCTs and other kinds of formal evidence um, to really uh, spotlight particular particular sort of high high impact 
you know, periods or inflection points or places where people are kind of making meaning. And I think this really nuanced uh, and evidence-based approach to solving these problems comes through so clearly in the new 2023 science paper that's coming out. So um, it's coming out the same day as the show is published again, and it's called Where and With Whom Does a Brief Social Belonging Intervention Promote Progress in College? So I think we should just pivot to this to this new paper. This is uh, using data from the College Transition Collaborative, as you said, from across 22 post-secondary institutions. As you said earlier, 27,000 students across all these institutions partook in either the belonging intervention or the control condition, uh, which is just a huge sample size. I mean, it's a big paper, lots of people involved, as you, as you said. The paper reports a significant increase of anticipated belonging for students in the experimental group compared to the control, which is kind of just a basic check or a manipulation check. But can you describe what anticipated belonging is? What the intervention does, right, is it conveys it's normal to worry at first about whether you belong, and that gets better with time. And then the manipulation check that you're referring to is people's anticipated growth in their belonging from when they first arrive on campus to the end of their sophomore year. So part of that is happening because people are becoming more negative and perhaps more realistic in anticipating that they won't feel like they belong immediately when they arrive on campus. But Mm -hmm. it's also that they're anticipating that that will grow over time. And so the goal that's that we think that's psychologically healthy, because then if you you think that you're going to belong immediately, then you don't. And if you don't belong immediately, then you start to wonder, like, what's wrong? Is there something wrong with this place? Is there something wrong with me? Like, what's going on? And that can lead you down a bad road. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But again, the paper is about where and with whom the intervention was successful. So in other words, the effect of the intervention was not homogeneously the same for all students at every institution. Instead, the effect had a lot of heterogeneity, meaning the intervention's effect weren't the same for everyone who participated in the study across every context that people took part in the study. The purpose of this paper was to work out what explains that heterogeneity. So let's just start with the question of with whom does the intervention promote progress? Can you explain this concept of local identity group and how we use it in our analyses. Often we talk about group identities as though they're kind of static and universal in meaning, almost as though the, the meaning of a group is inherent to it. So we say Black students, or we say women, or we say first-generation students. But what it means to be, for example, a first-generation college student might be radically different in one space than another space. So you might go to college, you might be a first-gen student, you go to college and 40% of the classmates there are first-gen students. There's a very strong, very active first-generation community. Maybe there's like a strong community center. Uh, lots of faculty talk about how they were first-generation students and that the whole point of college is, is really to be built around first-generation students. And, and you feel valued and supported and normal and contributing in that world. But you could also be a first-generation student at a world in a world where That's not true, where it feels like most people aren't first generation, that most people are like doctor, you know, they're the children of doctors and lawyers and business people who make a lot of money. And that's not you. And so like what it means to be a person with an identity is built in part by the nature of the context. This is something we've known in psychology for forever. So, you know, years and years ago, Bill McGuire at Yale University did studies where he asked young people, kids, students, to just say, who are you? And and to list uh, a number of different answers to that question. 
And if you were part of a racial group that was underrepresented in school, if you were a white student in a predominantly black class, if you were a black student in a predominantly white class, you were more likely to mention your, your racial identity. If your gender identity was underrepresented in your family, if you were a boy, but you had like three sisters, you were more likely to reference the fact that you were a boy. But if you were one of those three sisters, you were less likely to reference the fact that you were a girl. This is also something that sociologists have known. Sociologists talk about identity like this all the time. So as a theoretical matter, we understand identities as built in context, as varying in context, that sometimes you walk into one setting and it feels like your race is relevant. Sometimes you walk into a different setting, it feels like your gender is relevant. Um, so that varies. And so one of the one of the empirical strategies here was to define local identity groups. So people of a given race ethnicity with a given first generation status at a given college in a given cohort and look at each of the different 370 plus local identity groups in our sample, what their experiences were like. Yeah. And you looked at what their experience was like along two contextual factors. So there was the local identity groups, historical achievement and their belonging affordances. Can you describe what these two terms refer to? Yeah. So what we wanted to do uh, conceptually was to understand for which local identity groups are questions about belonging going to come up? And for which local identity groups, is it really possible to come to belong in that space? So we think about that as kind of vulnerability and opportunity. And so for the vulnerability part, we looked, as you said, at historic achievement. So for each local identity group, we asked, at what level was this group achieving in the recent past, like two, three, four years in the past? Is this a group that's historically been high achieving? People come, they stay, they're succeeding. Or is it a group that historically has been lower, um, lower achieving? And the idea is that if people's groups are lower achieving, then that's more likely to provoke questions about whether people like me can belong here might reflect actual things in the environment that are making you not belong. And it might serve as a cue that implies that people like you don't belong. And it means that there's opportunity for improvement. So that was the first factor that we looked at, the historic level of achievement. The second factor we looked at was we just did a survey with all of our students in the spring. We asked them questions, including about the extent to which they had attained at least a moderate level of belonging at that point. We looked at groups that had done so, and we looked at groups that hadn't done so. The prediction is that you'll get a bigger effect for the groups that were lower achieving, who are in a situation where there's reason to wonder whether people like me belong, but have that opportunity to belong. Definitely. You know, one thing I really love about this paper is it has a really clear respect for the core of social psychology, which I've heard summarized as just the power of the situation. Like, of course, there's heterogeneity. Of course, the intervention wasn't the same for everyone because students are engaging with the intervention across a bunch of different contexts. Even their identity group in the paper is contextualized. And you drive these points home in the discussion section of the paper by appointing universities and colleges to goals that they should have. Um, you, you point out two specific goals. Can you describe the goals that universities should have and how universities can work towards achieving them based on uh, some of the findings that we have in the paper? Yeah. So what the what the basic results imply is that universities can do two really important things to increase uh, the rate at which students complete the first year, but especially students from groups that are historically less well served. And the first thing is to is the intervention itself to really convey in powerful, redundant ways the basic idea that it's normal to worry at first about whether you belong in college, that that gets better with time. People have different ways that they experience that. 
but that that's a basic aspect of this experience. You should anticipate that. You should know that that's happening. We did that in an online module that kids completed in the summer before they came to college, and they spent about seven and a half minutes in the key writing task. But there's plenty of ways that institutions have through welcome processes, through welcome addresses, through first-year programming and first-year residences, through first-year courses, like first-year writing courses, the institutions have to convey this idea more impactfully and powerfully. But the second thing is that we know that this intervention is not a magic bullet. It's not just going to help people succeed sort of absent the context. People really need opportunities to be able to come to belong. And if you, if you give them this hopeful map for making sense of their transition into college, but it doesn't actually seem to hold for them that they reach out to professors and professors never respond to their requests for advising or mentorship, that you know, they don't have opportunities to join clubs or student groups on campus that are important to them and of value to them, then the intervention doesn't have any effect at all in these data. And so the, the second uh, key lesson for institutions, which is really about the hard work of creating the best college and university environment for students is to expand belonging affordances and to do that for every group and to do that in a way that's conscious of group identity because belonging affordances are not just a universal thing. It's not just what like the generic student experiences. It's what this kind of student and that kind of student, and that might be first-generation Latina students. It might be continuing generation African-American students. It might be people who are coming in from a military background or other kinds of circumstances. And to really track that for all of these different groups and ask the question, where are you serving students well? Where are you, where, which kinds of groups are achieving at least moderate levels of belonging by the end of the first year? And where are you not? And what, do you, what are you going to do about that then? What changes can you make? And I think a really important aspect of that and the place to start is to sit down with students and talk to them and listen, you know, give them a platform, give them space, make that a safe space, give them food, make it good food, honor their honor their experiences, good and bad, hear what they're trying to achieve, hear where, they, where they've struggled, and then think about how you as an institution can respond to that. Definitely. You know, when I was a research coordinator for CTC, I took, towards the end of my time there, I took site visits to various universities. And I remember we visited one school and we gave kind of almost a symposium where we presented the work we were doing at the institution and we took questions. And there was a student who asked something like, why are you focusing on fixing the, the underrepresented students? Their belonging concerns are legitimate. Why doesn't the university focus on making the environment less threatening to marginalized students? Um, I thought that was such a poignant question. And uh, I think I was there with uh, Christine Logel, and she gave a really great answer, which was something along the lines of, well, this intervention is just one thing that, that we can do, and it's helpful, but it does not, like... Uh, absolve the university from solving the other problems that the university might have. I just think this paper gives those concerns a really important voice. Yes, the intervention is not effective if the university isn't doing what it needs to do to make the context welcoming. Yeah, I mean, we know that there's racial bias in the degree to which faculty respond to requests for mentorship from students. And we also know that racial bias like that varies across contexts. If that's happening in a, in a setting, we have to address that and, and solve that. Tiffany Brandon at UCLA has a model of, um, of uh, belonging in college for African-American students that she calls pride and prejudice. It's up the pride and damp down the prejudice. There's a nice work coming from Marcus Brower's lab at the University of Wisconsin on how to set norms, actually more exactly how to convey the existing kind of pro-diversity norms that exist in college campuses within classrooms. And that can improve the experiences for all students and reduce inequalities in achievement. 
uh, in those classes. So there's there's tons of opportunities here. It's not about implicit bias training, uh, but there's tons of uh, opportunities here to create the belonging affordances in different kinds of settings for people who are pursuing the learning objectives and um, general growth objectives that people have in those settings. Right. Because this is the this is the killer for the effect. Like if you don't have an environment that is welcoming, that will allow you to have the full flowering of belonging. It will cancel out. It doesn't matter that we have the intervention. It just right. it won't help. Right. I do want to emphasize that that one of the things that's really I think grounding here is that 65% of students and 85% of local identity groups in our sample do have adequate belonging affordances in our models. Most people do. Uh, but it's also true that there's inequality in which groups are likely to get belonging affordances and which aren't. So it turns out African-American students are less likely to get adequate belonging affordances than, than some other groups. And so that's part of the problem. So you had 22 universities in the sample for the study. These institutions vary along several dimensions, including size, selectivity, geography, and you describe what would happen if the intervention was rolled out to universities similar to those seen in the study. Yeah, so we looked at the, so the institutions just at a descriptive level are extremely diverse, right? You have small colleges uh, that vary considerably in their selectivity and you have big you know, public universities that also vary in their selectivity, you know, elite private institutions. So you've got in this sample uh, just some institutions like Indiana University, Indiana State University. Uh, you've got University of Central Arkansas. You have Lewis and Clark College. You have Kalamazoo College. You have Dartmouth University, Cornell, uh, Yale University. So just an incredibly wide range, just descriptively, of institutions. And then we used a, an approach, statistical approaches developed by the um, statistician Beth Tipton, who's at Northwestern, to quantify the uh, generalizability sample here. And what we do here is we look at the institutions that are represented in our sample and how they vary the range within this, this institutional sample across a variety of characteristics, including things like selectivity and institutional resources and size and diversity. And we find that that sample is um, uh, well representative of uh, 749 four-year institutions in the United States, which annually admit more than a million students to college uh, each year. The reason why that's important then is because it implies that the effects that we observe, both the uh, like impact effects and the um, patterns of heterogeneity, would generalize to that 749 institutional sample. Right. And if the institutions do roll out the intervention, I think it's something along the lines of 12,000 additional students that would finish their first year in college if we had an intervention like this at each of those institutions. Right. And to be clear, right, that intervention exists. It's online and available, freely available to all of these institutions. And it's also uh, an implementation that uh, here was, um, you know, very minimal. And to the extent that colleges and universities are able to convey the basic idea of the belonging message in more impactful and redundant ways, uh, we would expect larger effects. Right. Yeah. Super, super happy that you joined us. I think this work is just really fascinating. And I'm so glad that we got the paper out finally, and it's been so much hard work by so many great people. Um, thank you so much for joining us. We do have one final question we like to end the show on. It's a, a little bit more of a philosophical question. And I think I, I, I want to say I came up with this question at dinner for CT, with CTC folks, actually. So, um, and I've been asking every guest that comes onto the show the same question. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pose it to you, Greg. Um, 
Imagine you're in another dimension. You're looking at a panel of dials that control human behavior in some way, big or small. Um, the dials control small things like how often people cut their grass or really big things like uh, how much money they give to political campaigns. So the question for you is you can just conjure up a dial and you can move it, but you can only move one. So the question is, do you move a dial? If so, which one, how much and why? Does it have to be a behavior or could it be a psychological process? Could be, yeah, anything about human nature. Okay, so what I would say is that I would, I would there's a lot of dials I'd move, but here's one. <laughs> so I would, um, every time you have, I would make it such that every time you have that nascent thought, that's uh, that little bugaboo in the back of your head that says, maybe I'm not enough. Maybe I can't do it. Maybe I don't belong. Maybe other people are better than me. That you can surface that. You don't suppress that. But you can surface that. You can see that. You can let that come out and you can look at it. And then you understand that even though it might feel like that's just you, that actually that's something that probably 99% of people around you are having in some form or other. And it's coming from the world that you're in. And it doesn't necessarily mean uh, what you might fear it means. Gotcha. Yeah. Beautifully stated. Sounds a lot like that intervention. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for joining us, Greg Walton. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Join us next time on A Bit More Complicated. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe to our podcast, leave a friendly rating, and share with someone you know. If you have a reaction you'd like to share with us, please find us on Twitter at abitmorepod or send an email to morecomplicatedpod at gmail.com.